Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is located on the ancestral lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumseh-Sequatin territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequatin-Ulu, and today's text, Reservation Dogs, is set in the fictional town of O'Kern in the real-life Okmulgee County, Oklahoma, the traditional home and location of the current-day capital city of the Muscogee Creek Nation. Mm-hmm. Joe, yes, I love this show so much, <laughs> and I didn't realize it was over <sighs> until I got to the last episode, and then I was like, "This feels very finale," mm-hmm. and then I looked it up, and it's done, and I'm. Like bereft. <laughs> I'm so sorry for your loss. I definitely went into <laughs> the whole season knowing that this was the end and just savoring every minute, every episode, every character beat. It's so good. And it's, you know, it's funny. Everything we've sort of very mildly critiqued the show about because we've loved it since the beginning. Mm-hmm. But I feel like everything we've struggled with to the extent that we have mostly i'm talking here about the balance between flashback and current day mm-hmm. older characters and younger characters i feel like they nailed it in this season yes. and now i want more of actually i want more of like the old characters i want to know more about their lives i'm so you know this season spends a lot of time looking to the history of this community mm-hmm. and especially the sort of changing role of the boarding school right. to this community. And uh, I found that stuff so fascinating and all those characters so like fleshed out and cool. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm so sad it's over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So this is the final season, 10 episodes like usual. They're all about 30 minutes. So we're not really changing the format, but you're right. The balance between the elders and our young teens just feels so much more pitch perfect. Like if folks go back and listen to our episode on season two, I had a big issue where I felt like we weren't spending enough time with the teens. And you're right, Brenna, it just somehow seems so much better better, which is deeply ironic because the mid-season entry for season three, episode five, Housemaid of Bongs, is an entire (laughs) flashback episode set in 1976. It's about Maximus, Brownie, Bucky, Irene, and Mabel as students in high school. And this should have irked me so much because we don't see our our present-day teens at all. And I thought this episode was fantastic. I actually hoped it was a spin-off. I enjoyed it so much. Yeah, I really loved learning about the relationships between the elders in this season. Two episodes before this, we have uh, an episode that's half set in the past. And it's set at the same school. So St. Nicholas Training School becomes St. Nicholas High School. And so you can see how over time, this one building is responsible for like a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. And even as it tries to transition from being like a boarding school to a school with dorms, as opposed to like an Indian boarding school in the American history, like sense of the term, um, there's still this constant, you know, Mabel at one point, she's sitting in the back of the car in that Housemaid of Bongs episode. And she's like, you know, the problem is that we're away from our community. Like, that's the problem. It doesn't matter that like our teachers are indigenous Mm -hmm. if we're still not with our families and our communities and i think that this season is really interested 
not in farming the trauma of that narrative, but really looking hard at the outcomes Mm -hmm. of that history in a way that I found so interesting. You know, we've checked out a lot of residential school texts and histories on this show. Mm -hmm. I've never really seen it done in this way. You know, there's one episode where the kids actually call out one of the elders for like not making enough of an effort to retain community ties. And they're like, you know, we know what happened to you and we're really sorry, but also like your cousin is dying. Come back with us to the community. Like we can help you reconnect. Mm -hmm. And so there's this kind of give and take between our main characters and the elders this season that really worked for me. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because I I definitely wanted to have a more sustained conversation about episode three, which is Dear Lady, the one that really focuses in on residential school trauma, where the Dear Lady becomes a literal avenger. She goes after someone Mm -hmm. who abused the kids. And I saw so many US critics talking about how emotionally impacting this was and how it really sheds this light on a topic that they didn't know much about and they thought that it was really breaking new ground. And I'll confess, I think the episode is good. I actually really enjoyed the direction by Danny Goulet, who's a Canadian Indigenous director. Shout out to her, folks. If you want to see more of her work, I highly encourage you to check out a film called Night Raiders, which would pair amazingly well with Rhymes for Young Ghouls, only it has a bit of a science fiction bent. But I'll Mm -hmm. confess, Britta, when I watch Dear Lady, I thought, okay, I've actually seen this before. Like, I didn't find it hit me quite the same way because you and I have read and Mm. seen this in so many other variations. I think that's a fair comment. I think that what is interesting about what Res Dogs is doing is like connecting Mm -hmm. that moment through the history of the rest of the characters to the present day, which again, we've seen. Mm -hmm. But I think there's something about I don't know. I found it really impactful to see how St. Nicholas like continues to loom. It's there in the Dear Lady flashback. It's there in Housemaid of Bongs. Like it's just always there Mm -hmm. and always present. And this idea that like the history is not so far away, I found really resonant this season in a way that I don't think I've seen the show grapple with Mm -hmm. to the same degree in previous seasons, maybe. Yeah. And I wonder if part of the other success of this, particularly the show over the long run, but especially this third season, is that because it's long form, we can actually build in something. It doesn't have to be a quote unquote, very special episode, even though Mm -hmm. I think you could frame Dear Lady as one of those. But because you have then seven additional episodes to continue unpacking that or finding the threads that connect it into the present day and so on, it just it somehow makes it more emotionally resonant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's something sort of spiritual, obviously, about Dear Lady and the fact that she clearly, she hasn't aged. Mm-hmm. She's chosen this path of vengeance right. uh, instead. Um, and it's keeping her young and beautiful, which I kind of mm-hmm. love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this episode also made me think of a really great podcast that listeners may or may not be familiar with. It's a Connie Walker podcast called Surviving St. Michael's. Okay. And she goes back through history to find the actual specific priest who abused her own father. Wow. It's super emotionally resonant and very, very well done. And of 
of course, you know, Connie Walker, I mean, she won the Peabody and the Pulitzer this year. So like, she knows she what hasn't she's done doing. much is what you're saying. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like, but this idea of what it means to grapple with that legacy in the present moment is very much what Bear is sort of, you know, as Bear sits in the car while she murders this mm-hmm. dude, <laughs> right? Like, it's this idea of what what does the current generation do not just with the trauma, we've seen that conversation a lot, mm-hmm. but with the anger and with the vengeance, you know, like, Dear Lady is cool. She's super cool. <laughs> like, and that's an interesting paradox, too, because, like, she's cool because she is vengeful yeah. and destructive and violent. And, okay, that's something to unpack as well, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she eats a mean pie. A lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> she eats a lot of pie. I dig it. And then, of course, she becomes something that Bear, he doesn't keep it a secret. Bear will tell anybody who will listen to mm-hmm. him that Dear Lady drove him home. Um, but only his mom believes right. him, right? No one else believes him. And so this idea of, you know, he's seen this thing that has this power and this resonance, but it it belongs exclusively to him because no one else will like help him hold it. I think that's another interesting aspect of, of the ways in which dear lady is kind of standing in for this history. Mm-hmm. How do you think that feeds into some of the other spirit guides that we see over the course of the show or particularly the season? Because once again, we do have William Knifeman who is bears guide and he, he shows up mostly at the beginning of the season and then bear gets frustrated with him and tells him that he doesn't want to see him anymore. So, he only reappears briefly in the series finale, but we also have an entire episode dedicated to Bear's mom, Rita, who mm-hmm. ends up getting quote unquote haunted by her dead friend Cookie. And yeah, I thought that that was a really interesting way of doing it because it confirms that everybody sort of has this like and of course we also have the the two spirits that are in the prison with um Lily Gladstone's character who returns and Oh, Brent, I lost my it's a great episode. On that episode again. <laughs> it's a really, really, really good episode. That she's fantastic, and basically, we've had basically have one episode per season, right, yes. with that character in the prison, and they are always the emotional kind of linchpins mm-hmm. of each season. And I don't know how they keep doing that I without know. ever feeling formulaic. It's wild. I'm I'm not going to say it's exclusively the power of Lily Gladstone, because I do think it's everything to do with the writing and the way it's filmed. But I'm just, I'm so excited that she is having this moment. Like she is about to explode Brenna. By the time this episode comes out, we're probably a couple of weeks away from the new Martin Scorsese film, which is basically her and Leonardo DiCaprio talking about more or less land appropriation in the US where a wealthy family just kills all of the indigenous people so that they can get to i think it's like oil rich or uh natural resources or something like that it's uh the osage county stuff mm-hmm. but it is going to launch lily gladstone into a supernova like she's probably going to be nominated for oscars and it's just i don't know there's something so exciting about seeing her come back for this tiny little role that is so important in this narrative it's so good. And I think, you know, part of it is because, well, I love Willie Jack. I think everybody loves Willie Jack. There's something <laughs> but about us more than that everyone character. else, I think. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about that character, right? And so because we get Willie Jack's moments of vulnerability primarily through those scenes, mm-hmm. 
that makes it all the more important, right? Yeah. And all the more resonant for us as viewers because we love her so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was not enough Willie Jack in this season. And there probably wasn't enough cheese for my liking. And I, I recognize that it's hard to give everybody that moment. I think mm-hmm. they each got a couple of scenes to really shine, but I was missing those entire episodes really just wholly dedicated to them. Well, we do get the cheese episode with Frankfurter Sandwich, right? Yeah, episode six. It, it, it feels less about his and more really firming up this idea that community is the most important thing. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think what's interesting about that episode is that I think an episode like Frankfurter Sandwich, and just so folks who haven't watched have the context, basically, everybody is really worried about Cheese, mm-hmm. because Cheese is a year younger than the other kids, right? And he's very much in that space of, like, I think everybody had this experience. If you had older friends in high mm-hmm. school, you start to look down the barrel of them graduating and you being like the one left behind, 100%. and it sucks. Yep. And that's where Cheese is. And so instead of like dealing with his feelings, he isolates. He's mm-hmm. like just playing video games yep. alone for days on end <laughs> to the point where like his grandma, who is not really his grandma, but is his grandma, mm-hmm. is like, I'm worried about you. Like, have you peed? And he's like, I don't know if I've peed. Um, so <laughs> he gets basically abducted by his uncles mm-hmm. um, who take him on. And so it's Brownie, Bucky and Big, who, of course, we have literally just seen in the flashback episode Mm -hmm. house made of bongs so we're back in present day with them and they take him camping and this is when things start to come full circle because maximus who bear meets in episode two who it turns out has like abandoned O'Kern and gone off on his own because nobody believed him that he had this close encounter with aliens Mm -hmm. which then we see happen in episode five and so now in episode six they kind of confess to him about losing track of maximus and how bad they feel about that and like Mm -hmm. their desire to not see that happen to cheese and his pals and what's interesting about that episode joe is i think you would have hated that episode in season two absolutely yep and you love it here i do yeah and i think the reason why we love it here is because like season one and season two were laying so much groundwork Uh uh-huh for bringing the two generations together and we didn't know it. Like, I kind of want to go back now and watch season one and season two. I mm-hmm. suspect I would be a lot more generous to those elder-focused episodes. Yeah. Because now we see them coming together and we see what the payoff has been for all that time spent with these characters. Exactly. Yeah. As I said, you know, the power of having a long-form TV show is mm-hmm. things that were still being ironed out or figured out in that first season start to come to fruition in season two, but particularly in season three, where they don't have to introduce these characters because we know them. We already love them. So now we're just ready to settle in and go on emotional journeys with them. So yeah, if, if this had been last season, I would have said, I don't need this story right now. Mm-hmm. Whereas in season three, knowing that it's the end, like, I didn't know where this was going to end in the final episode. So I spent the back half of the season wondering if this was going to be the last time we would ever see some of these characters. Mm -hmm. And particularly when the second last episode is dedicated almost entirely to Alora Dannon finding I want to talk about that episode, by the way. Let's come Uh back there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so I I was just suddenly worried that, oh, we were going to focus on just a couple of stories to take us into 
the future and we might not see some of these supporting characters again. So I did really enjoy the camping episode because it felt like we were shining a light on people who, you know, they had been there, but they hadn't had their moments to shine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We've said before that like there's a, a level at which cheese kind of he sort of stands in, I think, sometimes for the audience. He's often mm-hmm. the one who looks at this group of people around him and goes like, what are you guys yeah. doing? Yes. And so it's interesting to see an episode where actually Cheese is the one who's in trouble because we don't usually see Cheese in trouble. No, no. Even last season when he was sent away to a foster home because of his aforementioned not-grandmother, you know, I feel like we were less worried about him then than we were this season where you're just like, oh no, he's aimless. He's drifting. Well, and in that that episode last season, quickly becomes clear that Cheese – has his ish together far more than anybody else in this mm-hmm. house. And like, Cheese yep. is just there to help all of them, right? Yeah, exactly. Whereas here, yeah, we see Cheese struggling. And so seeing the community come together for him, I think is also a really nice moment of like, this community can work together for everyone. And it makes Daniel's death prior to season one all the more heartbreaking, right? Mm-hmm. Because we do see how everyone does have the capacity to come together and support each other. Right. And in many ways, like this is this whole series is a series about grieving Daniel and connecting mm-hmm. what happened to Daniel to this community's whole history, but also like how do we make sure Daniel never happens again is a real like it's a kind of a real echoing refrain in this season that a lot of what we've seen obviously has led up to. It's interesting that you say that because I was going to ask how you feel about the quote-unquote lack of Daniel. Because yeah, we perform this ceremony at the end of season two where we say goodbye to him in the ocean. It's a beautiful moment. And then most of season three, we barely even acknowledge him. Like we're not seeing Daniel very often. And I wondered if you felt that that frees the show up to Mm. explore some other stories now that we've quote-unquote moved past him. Well, it's interesting because I I totally get what you're saying. And I think in many ways, we're supposed to have released Daniel at the end of season two. And we don't Mm -hmm. ever see Daniel again. And I think that's a really important point. That actor is no longer coming into the the series through flashbacks or anything. Mm -mm. But, you know, Bear very consciously compares what happened to Maximus to what happened to Daniel, right? Mm -hmm. And when they do the rescue episode, does that send it? I freaking love that caper episode <laughs> it's so silly it's so silly and amazing they the, so the, they have to break maximus out of the mental hospital or so they think right. really maximus can leave whenever he wants he just signs himself out but they they perform it like a heist and um it's great and that mm. white guy who owns the garage who annoys them all the time will help them but only if they call him uncle he wants to be oh like one of the community elders everything about Everything about the little moments of like mocking the white people in the community and Mm -hmm. the sort of sheer ridiculousness and the physical comedy that they're all really good at comes together in that episode in a great way. But even there, Cheese and Bear make a comparison to Daniel and to Mm -hmm. like letting go of people. And of course, the camping episode is like all about, you know, we're very concerned that you're going to be like Maximus. And of course, because we know Bear has already compared Maximus to Daniel, there's that connection. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that it's less about the grieving of Daniel, which sort of ends with the ceremony in California, and now more about uh, never again. But in like Mm -hmm. a really conscious way, we see the characters working to 
really resist the kind of isolation that Daniel was obviously experiencing before we met these characters in season one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so before we talk about the finale, because I do feel like a lot of the storylines are anticipating how do we send these characters off, right? How do we mm-hmm. reassure the audience to a certain degree that these people will be okay? Because I think that that's a lot of what Rita's storyline is, what Allura mm-hmm. Dannon's storyline is, and particularly the finale, which of course is all set at Fixico's funeral. But let's let's pause and talk about Allura's dad, the penultimate episode. I love this episode, Joe. And I was expecting to have problems with it. Okay, okay. And I don't know why. I guess just because it could have been really emotionally manipulative. Like, there's a Mm -hmm. lot of ways that this story could have gone wrong. So, basically, Alora needs to find her dad. She's only just discovered that he actually has totally existed this whole time. Mm -hmm. And that he's white. And that he's white. And somehow, subliminally, nobody has ever said it to her, but she just assumed that, like, her dad died in the same accident as her mom or that shortly at like she just assumed he was dead never really occurred to her to find out more information and in fact one of uh one of her mom's friends is like why did you never just ask people and she was like i don't really know mm-hmm. but she has to fill in uh financial aid forms for school and so she has to find her dad because he exists <laughs> and so <laughs> yep so and he turns out he's like living nearby And he has three kids and a wife who is addicted to opiates. And so Mm -hmm. she doesn't see their kids, but he's hopeful that she will again. And he's so ordinary, Joe. Yeah. I was like, you know, I think there were two things I was worried about. I was worried that he was going to be secretly rich. Like, and when he goes to sign Mm. the financial aid form, she can't get financial aid because of, because he's secretly Mm -hmm. loaded. Like I was very worried that was going to be a plot point. Uh, and I was very worried he was going to be like just a total asshole. <laughs> mm-hmm. And instead, there's something much more complicated going on because he really is just like a guy who screwed up, who's trying to do everything right this time, mm-hmm. but also should have just reached out to his daughter. And yeah. like, it's both unforgivable and incredibly human and humane. Mm-hmm. I found I found this whole episode very moving and really nuanced you know Alora goes from not needing anything from her father to curiosity about these siblings to jealousy of what they have to Mm -hmm. a kind of like almost acceptance but not quite like an uneasy acceptance like she can build something with like she's going to go to college basically in this town so she'll have access to her siblings Mm -hmm. she'll be able to build a relationship if she wants to and I guess we kind of leave her on that question of does she want to Uh Uh-huh. And even is she telling the truth, right? Because the episode ends with these adorable step-siblings of hers saying, you know, hey, are we going to see you again? And she does respond in the affirmative, Mm -hmm. but I really feel like the episode lays it out that you could read it either way. You know, this could just be she's playing nice, but the minute she gets away, she will never think of these people again because she got what she came for. Or you could read it as, oh, this is the start of a different kind of community, a different kind of family that she hasn't had before. Yeah. And, you know, so Ethan Hawke plays her dad. I don't think we've said that. No. (laughs) Um, And he's not always an actor I like, but I think he does a very good job in this role. I think Mm. that there's something very... 
I mean, there's like slacker pothead yeah. vibes and not just because Total. we're literally introduced to him as he goes into a pot shop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And definitely this vibe of like, like I paint houses and I smoke weed and I raise my kids and I don't mm-hmm. really need anything more than those three things. Yeah, so laid back, just very easygoing, but you get that whiff of, oh, he's not really a very responsible adult. No, you know, like he's literally... He's literally smoking weed on his way to pick his kids up from the bus. Yeah. But he's very likable. Like, there's something mm-hmm. very charming about him. You immediately understand what it was that that Alora's mother would have found kind of compelling about him. Right. And Alora sees it too. And I, I think, think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's something really sweetly tentative about the way he is with her like yes. one minute he's like you probably want to leave right now and the next minute he's like come and meet your siblings <laughs> like he can't he kind of so desperate to keep her right yes yes i i love oh boy brian my husband and i do not do well with awkward situations mm. like definitely not in real life but also on media and they're tentative mm. just everybody's ready to bolt when they're having that coffee and he's trying to get her to stay and have pie and she just wants to leave she just wants him to sign this paper but then we need to go and get a pen it's ooh, it is so drawn out Mm -hmm. but it's these little moments that the show excels at doing right it makes you live in the discomfort because everything about this interaction is so meaningful yeah yeah and and has the potential to be beautiful and Alora doesn't believe that at the beginning, right? right? And so as an audience, we're sort of watching her come to realize that there actually is potential for a different kind of joy, a different kind of connection. Mm-hmm. I just I just thought this episode was so well done, considering all the things that it could have been. Mm-hmm. And of course, we should note, too, that this yeah. was written by Kawana Hare Devery Jacobs. So yes. I... I think she's also – did she direct one of them? Yeah, she directs the uh, the episode with Cookie where Cookie's um, right. there we haunting go. Rita. Yeah. So, again, it's just like the show has been this breeding ground for Indigenous talent to the point where one of the main actors on the show has now become an executive director of other properties, writer, and a director in her own right. Well, I also think it's so – it's such the right choice from Sterling Harjo to mm-hmm. give her that opportunity Absolutely. here yeah. because no one knows this character better, better. than she does. Yeah. And there's something so subtle and authentic about how we see Alora in both the episode where like we have her kind of – triangulated with her mother who she never sees right rita is being haunted by cookie but cookie never interacts with alora Mm -hmm. and there's something really painful and nuanced and exquisite about how those scenes take place um and likewise the writing in this episode that gives alora so much to do emotionally yes i just i loved how this plot line wrapped up you know and and we kind of know from the first episode really that Alora's mm-hmm. going to find her dad. And how that ends up shaking out over the course of the season, I think, is just really, really carefully done. Yeah. 
And it was interesting because there were a number of people who naturally stood up and took notice, you know, hey, how did they get Ethan Hawke on the show? And it turns out that he's friends with Sterling Harjo and he was on the short list ever since they decided they wanted to actually have the character appear on screen. But there's something to be said for the show essentially grabbing an A-list actor Mm -hmm. in this plum spot because it would have been easy to say, okay, let's just, let's cast somebody who we know is going to do a good job. But I love that they didn't really do the stunt casting until the penultimate episode because it's not about bringing in a big white actor. Like that's never what the show has been about. No. And it's interesting because we've had one or two each season, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of who the others were. And it's interesting how... They don't stand out in they your don't mind stand out. when not you memorable. think back into the episodes. It's really funny how, um, oh yeah, Megan Mullally's in mm-hmm. one of the episodes for oh, sure. But I hated that episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, speaking of stunt casting, can we talk mm-hmm. a bit about Graham Greene as Maximus? He may only be stunt casting to Canadians, but I <sighs> loved his performance here. So good. And particularly when you get to see him interact with the other elders in the finale, you know, he gets his big episode with Bear. That's number two, when Bear basically gets lost and Maximus takes him in. And you understand just the depth of how damaged this man is. I didn't love that episode when I first watched it, but I think it works better in hindsight when you know where we're going with this character. Mm -hmm. But, oh, Graham Greene, what a just absolute treasure he's so magnetic on screen hey like Mm -hmm. but so funny like just he's able to negotiate all these different emotions in the most captivating way even when the dialogue is silly he's amazing well and i think part of why that maximus episode struck you that way joe is because it really does come out of nowhere right Mm -hmm. so the Premiere of the season, we have them stranded in California. Um, Teeny comes to rescue them. She gets everybody onto the bus. They think Bear is on the bus, but mm-hmm. of course, he's not. No. And he's stranded. <laughs> and yep. we have William Knifeman being like, I can't even believe they thought that guy was Bear. That guy's white. And there's a very funny <laughs> moment. Sure. Um, but we end up dropped into this episode where Bear is like lost in the desert. Mm-hmm. William Knifeman is talking to him, and then he gets literally, Bear literally gets shot by a tranquilizer dart. And it's yep. like... It's wild. Okay. And it is wild. And then he's, you You think anything is going to happen to him. I kind of thought there was going to be like some sort of sci-fi twist or something mm-hmm. where he's been like... But of course, Maximus is not in his, you know, clearest mind in this scene. And what we come to discover is that Maximus has been in and out of psychiatric facilities mm-hmm. and has had this recurring notion that he's being abducted or going to be abducted after this encounter that we then have in episode five. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it does feel weird. And in fact, I was halfway through that episode and I was like, oh, Joe is hating this. Joe is not <laughs> enjoying himself right now. <laughs> I struggled a little bit through it. Yeah. <laughs> but... It also, I think, helped to have it so early in the season as opposed to midway through when I would have said, no, we're running out of time. I don't want to see this right now. Yes. And of course, by episode five, six, we're starting to recognize that there's a point, right? That this Mm -hmm. is all drawing together. But there's something about Graham Greene. You really believe that he is having these experiences, right? Like he never comes across as 
silly. He never comes across as like making fun of someone mm-hmm. who has these beliefs. Like it's really, really honest, I think, yeah. as a portrayal. It feels tragic. Yeah. Oh my God. The, the final scene when they're escorting him off the property is Ooh, tragic. Yeah. I was welling up for sure. Mm-hmm. And then when you meet him, like kind of quote unquote healthy mm-hmm. at the end of the season, and he's interacting with the elders, and he's, you get this sense that he's going to stay. Like you get this sense that he's back in the community and he's finding a space for himself again mm-hmm. it is really satisfying and it's a, it's only an actor like graham green who can in basically three episodes yeah make a plot arc that satisfying mm-hmm. and three episodes that aren't wholly dedicated to him as a character right come in fully establish this character one of the times we're talking about the character in question is going to be played by someone else because it's a whole mm-hmm. flashback bottle episode mm-hmm. yeah Okay, so let's talk about Dig. This is yeah. the series finale. Of course, it is written and directed by Sterling Harjo as well as uh, Chad Charlie. And this follows Fixico's funeral. So Willie Jack has been job shadowing a medicine man who sits outside of the IHS facility. And she... I think knew that something was going on with him. She wanted to do better by the community by learning from the elders. But this whole... Ooh, Brenna. Mm. <laughs> it just all comes together in this incredibly satisfying way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because what's interesting is, you know, Willie Jack is really haunted from basically the Send It episode on. You know, the reason she takes the kids with her to go and try to bust Maximus out of prison is because, well, should they think it's prison? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just love the part where he's like, I can just sign myself out. <laughs> yep. Such a good punchline. The reason she does all that is because she kind of feels like she's sort of failed at being his apprentice because right. she feels like she hasn't learned anything. anything. And what we get in Dig is sort of this concerted effort of the community being like, you don't understand. Like, what did Fixico do? Oh, he went and sat with elders when they were ill. He went mm-hmm. and bought people groceries. He showed up. Like, yep. that's the lesson you were learning, <laughs> Willie Jack. The lesson is to show up. And in many ways, that's what this whole season is about. Yes. This whole season is about showing up for people. Mm-hmm. And the ways in which a community provides its own kind of support, whether that's understood by people from outside or not. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, you know, that's Willie Jack's arc in this episode is really coming to recognize what it means to be in community with other people. And mm-hmm. and that the goal wasn't to, like, learn every herb that Fixico understood the use of, but rather just that, that notion of being in community with people. Mm-hmm. And there's just something so delightful about seeing people come together, right? Like the men dig the grave and it takes them hours because they do it by hand and the women are in the kitchen making food. But it's not even about the more ceremonial kind of traditional quote unquote elements of the funeral. It's about seeing these characters come together, share stories, have laughs and this kind of stuff. Like in a way, there's almost nothing to the episode we're just watching people go through this one very specific day and yet it is the perfect summation of this show and everything it stands for it's interesting that you bring up the gender divide in the episode joe because something i thought was fascinating was the way willie jack is sort of managed Mm -hmm. through this which is 
So Willie Jack is a tomboy, has been since the first episode of season one. I think we've even questioned whether she is queer-coded. Yeah, and there's never any sort of discourse about that in the Mm -mm. show. No. But there's a scene when they start to dig the grave, um, which is, you know, like, quote-unquote, men's work. And the first person they hand the shovel to is Willie Jack. And there's just this sort of subtle acceptance of who Willie Jack is as person. And this notion that, like, yeah, generally the men do this and the women do this, but not everybody fits that paradigm. Right. Without it being a plot point or, like, an issue, it just kind of is. Yeah. Um, And I found that moment really beautiful because there's this look on Willie Jack's face that, like, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. A hundred percent. And it's not made a big deal, as you Mm -hmm. said. It's not as though the episode hinges on her trying to find her place within the men and them resisting it. It's more this natural evolution where they understand Willie Jack is the person who should speak at this funeral and her eulogy is absolutely fantastic. And then it's like, okay, you you deserve to be the person. And again, this isn't really a relationship that the show had investigated until this season. Like, Willie Jack and Fixico were not together throughout season one and season two. You know, we saw the character outside and they would interact briefly with him. But it's not as though we anticipated this huge emotional outcome for Willie Jack. And yet... It is, again, just so satisfying how cleverly and carefully it has been weaved in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I obviously cried throughout this episode. <laughs> oh, I don't think I made it through an episode without crying this entire season. It was a mess. But for me, the scenes that really got me were the ones of the, especially the old men, but the elders just like sitting around kind of commenting on mm-hmm. what the young people are doing. And there's just something really... This episode in particular, but I think this season in particular, is very interested in sort of cycles. Yes. And we see all of that come together in Dig in a way that, yeah, it's wholly satisfying. But it's also mm-hmm. just, it's nice to spend time with all these characters one last time. Uh, yeah. It's a real ensemble episode. Everybody gets at least mm-hmm. a moment. Yep. It's quite beautiful. It's exquisite. Yeah. I'm always very hesitant about series finales because typically everything rides or dies on them, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of your last gasp of spending time with the characters, but also how you remember the show after the fact. And it's really tricky. It's such a delicate balancing act to satisfy people without also saying, and everybody's going to be fine. Like, there's a lot of uncertainty at the end of Dig. You know, Reed is going to go off to a new city. Is she going to find her community with this new job? Where does that really leave Bear? Is Alora going to succeed going to university and potentially going into huge debt and so on? Mm-hmm. But the ending leaves you with the impression that even though this is the start of a lot of new journeys, that this community will always exist to welcome all of these characters back. And there is that safety net. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I I, I don't know, Joe, how many ways can I say that I thought this was amazing? (laughs) You know what? Here's the way that I will end it. I am so grateful to you because I knew that the show existed, but I had only ever seen the promos and it probably wouldn't have ended up on my radar if you hadn't said we should cover this for the show. And Mm. you have given me three years of just fantastic quality television. So thank you. 
and so many actors to follow, right? So right. many of them who who live and work in Canada too. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of meat here, and to see the ways in which so many of these actors, yeah, have gone on to have gone on to write or direct or have gone on to other roles. Mm-hmm. It's going to be just. I feel like this is one of those series that becomes like you very know, important. Yeah, like like a little breeding ground of a little group who then go on to do amazing things. Like I can't imagine. I can't imagine not wanting to see what any one of these actors is doing next. And and that's really exciting, too, because, you know, for way too long, Indigenous representation, especially on the small screen, has been terrible. So Absolutely awful. Yep. So when Reservation Dogs came out, we also had Rutherford Falls, and we felt like there was this, like, moment, right? Mm-hmm. And, of course, Rutherford Falls <laughs> didn't find its audience. And, you know, but... With Reservation Dogs, this year it went on to like non-streaming. FX is airing the series in its entirety starting just this past June. We have this huge body of creative talent who hopefully we will see, you know, they've been now recognized, whether it's by Independent Spirits or the Emmys, like they've been recognized. So like, let's see where they go next. I just, this show Mm -hmm. fills me with hope about what streaming platforms can offer for stories like this. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't often feel a lot of hope about the industry, Joe. So, like, very exciting. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And if nothing else, I can say we've already picked up one title that I'm keeping on your and my radar for the show. Because I did see Kawana Hare, Devery Jacobs in a new role at TIFF called Backspot, where she plays a competitive cheerleader. And I thought that film was great. It's got, I think either a non-binary or trans director. It's just really interesting. It's very up our alley, but it was one of those things where I looked at it and said, she's not only the lead, but she's executive producing this vehicle. So I'm just very excited to, yeah, follow all of these people's careers. Yeah, me too. Should we play one last round of Reservation Dogs Bingo? (laughs) Yes, let's do it. Bingo! Not a good bingo. All right, Joe. So we definitely have CanCon here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. CanCon is, and we definitely have a dead body. Poor old Fixco. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we have female directors or screenwriters sprinkled throughout this season. Exciting to see. Yes. And obviously we have good friendships. It's interesting to see the core four and their ups and downs. Mm-hmm. But how they, you know, that last episode, there's a beautiful moment when Bear and Alora say bye. It's like... Mm-hmm. It's hard and it's beautiful and it's exactly right. Like they should be moving on to to new different things. Absolutely. And of course, I love that the show resists the implication that they might end up together. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, I think the insinuation is that he's actually going to date Jackie, which was yes. an unexpected development. But apparently they've been making out. We didn't even know. Well, they, they teased it in an early episode, but... It almost seemed like the two of them didn't realize that there was an attraction until people commented on it. And then by the end of the season, suddenly they're acting on it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, any other show would have looked at the chemistry between those two actors and said, oh, yeah, we got to put Alora and Bear together. And the show doesn't go there. Yeah, I really like that about it. We've obviously got a road trip because, of course, Bear has to make his way across the country. (laughs) Yes, he does. Poor Bear. (laughs) Um, Magic Supernatural with all of our Mm -hmm. um, spirit guides. Yes. And is there anything else? I mean, I'm going to say abuse because of not just the residential schools, but also the the imprisonment of Maximus, quote mm-hmm. unquote, in the psychiatric care. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Do we want to say stunt casting for Ethan Hawke? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Then we'll, we'll put that in there. Um, and yeah, is that really it? I mean, this has never been a show that traffics no. in tropes, but um, as weird as it sounds, if we remove the romanticism from it, could we say that the funeral in Dig is a bit of a perfect date because it's mm. the unity of the entire community? Well, I kind of love even just that moment that Bear and Alora share when she confesses to him that she's leaving for college. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful moment and a beautiful sort of, yeah. I would call that a, I mean, it's emotionally wrenching, but yes. perfect date nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. Well, if we allow that perfect date square, then we do end up with a line. Aw, good job, everybody. <laughs> All right, Joe. Um, nah, it's hard to move on to other things, Joe. Yep, it is. It's hard to move on to the next two weeks you've programmed for me, Joe. Well, ah. suck it up, princess. <laughs> <laughs> so we're heading back to the Hunger Games universe. We've got Mockingjay next week, part two, the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the movie adaptation of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes the following week. So yeah, for yeah. those of you who really love hunger games and for those of you who really love listening to me not love hunger games it's going to be two weeks of great content for you you know what i challenge you to come in with an open mind no. i'm i'm interested <laughs> to see if you will appreciate some of the things particularly now that we get to look at the whole of the trilogy of what suzanne collins was trying to achieve i'm midway through the back half of mockingjay and i will confess i do think that she's making some interesting moves it's just when we start to fall back onto the ooh, now we're doing the hunger games only it's in the capital streets i think that's where she she just can never leave the games portion behind and in fairness i mean we've said this before but i don't know how much of that is her and how much of that is like the industry of publishing <laughs> like yeah. uh-huh. was she ever going to be allowed to write a book that didn't just roll back into those tropes i don't know Anyway, I will. I am reading it. I'm reading it. I'm keeping an open mind. But I just, there's so much there that I find frustrating. So you can hear all about that next week and the week after. Okay. So folks, until then, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on the social medias at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. Joe, where do they Mm -hmm. find you? I can be reached at B, stole my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's gray with an A. And... Joe, Mm -hmm. I think that people should write to us with their Reservation Dogs reflections because that would give us one more chance to talk about Reservation Dogs. So if you want to do that, you can find us on email, hkhspod at gmail.com. Lovely. All right. So I'm sad to be leaving this behind, but so glad we got to have these three episodes. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. I'll see you on the page, Joe. And I will see you on the screen.